The scripture reading this morning, um, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, 5 and 6, and then Joshua chapter 2, which is where we'll spend the majority of our time. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies for Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent the message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in the country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above all on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to, any, to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a great story. Um, we're going to get into it. But I want to, you know, as, you, as we enter into, we're in Advent, you know, next week. Um, it's just the fourth week of Advent, and then we come to Christmas. I mean, we're you know just over, uh, just under two weeks from Christmas Day. Like lots of this is a, this is a fun season, and um, I don't know what your little family traditions are. I'm assuming there are probably some films you like to watch during Christmas time, during Advent. And I was looking up the top 50 films people watch during Advent, and all of the ones you would guess, um, of course, are on there. Um, Christmas Vacations on there, you know, The Grinch, Elf, uh, Miracle on 34th Street. Um, and as I was reading through that, I finally found, I was wondering about one in particular, um, Home Alone, right? Home Alone ranked like 51 out of 55, which I thought was completely ridiculous. Uh, there was a lot of films on there that I'd never even heard of. But part of what's so funny about Home Alone and, and you know, why it's, you know, it's probably not something I could watch every month, but once a year kind of, you know, fits, fits me. Um, is you've got this experience of a family 
they, you know what it's like. Sunday morning is not the most relaxed time of the week. And uh, they're getting up and they're going to go on vacation. And the mother is on the airplane. And with a look that only a mother who has forgotten her child can give, she looks at the camera and she's like, just, oh my goodness, I left my son at home by himself all alone, home alone, right? So from that moment on, you're asking yourself, what's going to happen to Kevin? Like, what is going to happen in this story? And as he's there, um, all of a sudden, these two criminals try to break in. And it's funny because they're buffoons. And Kevin is kind of like this super smart, sneaky, wise little guy. And he kind of, you know, sets all these traps up and they get hurt. I mean, you've seen the show. But at the end of the story, of course, the family comes home and everything's okay. And the guys are taken away and it's great. Um, with the story of Rahab, as we read this story, it is, it is a story full of suspense, intrigue, excitement, and we learn a lot about different characters. The character development in the story is amazing. You learn something about the spies. Um, they're, 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 uh, they, they have, there's some questionable character with them in some ways. Uh, you learn about the king of Jericho. Uh, you learn about Joshua a little bit. You learn about Rahab some. But the character development you really hone in on, if you're paying attention to the story, is the kind of God that God is. Advent teaches us about the kind of God it is that we worship. A God who is gracious, a God, a God who is kind, a God who very much uses providence to accomplish his purposes, a God who is gracious to people that you might think everyone else has written off. That's the kind of God that we worship during Advent. One who makes promises to us and then fulfills those promises and has you know, things that happen in a story and a plot line and development where we go, wow, that is definitely, that is a dangerous path you're treading there, Lord. Because the kinds of people that you seem to work with are troublesome, not dependable. They're, they're people that if I was going to put kind of a hall of fame of people and I'm going to record the scriptures for all of time for people to read about who I am as a God, you are picking some really strange characters. And Rahab is one of those characters who, as we discover, becomes so significant. Because as we read in Matthew, she's included in the genealogy of Jesus. This woman, as we read in Joshua chapter 2, is a prostitute. She is in Jericho. She's not part of God's people. She is the enemy, and she becomes the center point of someone that God redeems, restores, and includes in his family both then and forever. It's really, really beautiful. So let's kind of talk through the story for a moment and just kind of visualize it even in your head because it's so descriptive. I think you can do that. In verse 1, Joshua sends out some spies to check on Jericho, right? So you can imagine uh, the people of Israel are there and they're, they're ready for battle and they want to send two spies in to do some reconnaissance to check out what's going on in the city so they can have a better idea of then how to best attack and what they're really facing. The king of Jericho finds out about this because the spies are loudmouths, I think. I mean, you kind of have to read the story. But also because they're in a place where they've probably been drinking. They've been hanging out with Rahab and her friends. And people discover who they are. And word gets back to the king. And the king sends these soldiers to come check on these spies and talk to Rahab because they realize that Israel is coming for them. Rahab hides the men on the roof, uh, and the king's men come to the place and say, Rahab, where are they? She's like, I don't know. I, you know, they left, it, they left, and they went out the city gate, and if you chase after them now, you might find them. Like, you might catch them, because, you know, they can't be that far. So the king's men go out, they look for them for a few days, they can't find them. Rahab lets the men down the rope, and, 
And in the process of that, she says, please save my family. You know, everyone's freaking out because of who you are. Will you please save my family? And they make a promise to her, and they say that they will. It's interesting with Rahab, it's one of the longest monologues we have of any woman in the scriptures. You've got Deborah in Judges. You have the Magnificat with Mary. We'll talk about that next week. But this, this monologue that we see take place with Rahab is one of the longest in the scriptures. And it's, it's from a person that really shouldn't have been part of the story. And yet she becomes the person God wants to use in a special way to include her in this genealogy. To take away what defined her, as Joshua said in the beginning of, the, of chapter 2, and redefine her by something greater. And that is to be part of of the story of Advent, the anticipation of God coming, the anticipation of God fulfilling his promises. There's no one that God isn't interested in. Verse 17, the men say to Rahab, hey, if you'll just keep your side of the bargain, we'll keep ours, our lives for your life. So she lets down a rope, they escape, and they make their way on. Um, It's interesting, too, if you think about this story with Rahab, it's kind of a picture of the heart of God, a picture of how um, God even desires those who understand who he is to express that kind of love towards others. Rahab does these things at great risk to herself. You know, there's an impending doom. There's the soldiers who are coming that she's afraid of and the God they worship. But there are men who are soldiers sent from the king who confront her and she courageously covers for these two spies. And she does that because she is beginning to believe who God is. And knowing who God is redefines and recalibrates how she thinks then she needs to live. So she protects these men, she sends them on their way, and then they do the same thing. They tell Joshua the story, and Joshua says, yes, we're going to deliver them. That's always God's way. He desires for us to understand how much he loves us, and in understanding that, we begin to do something. We begin to live out that love towards other people. If you really want to know where someone is in their faith, consider how they treat other people. We will treat other people based on how we think God treats us. If we're judgmental, it's because we think God's judgmental. If we're ungracious, it's because we think, well, God's gracious, but only to a point. If you really want to understand your own spirituality, consider how you love other people. This is a story of people wrestling with what it means to love, what it means to be loved by God, And how, understanding how much they are loved and loved by God, to then express that love towards others. God is making it possible for Israel to finally find a home, to go into Jericho, to pass through Jericho, to finally take the land. And we read about um, Joshua defeating the Amorites, King Sion and Og, and he defeats them, and that blows everybody's mind. Because those are really powerful kings. And then, as, as Rahab said, they've heard about how this God opened the sea for his people and let them pass through to escape from Pharaoh, one of the most powerful kings on the planet at that point, and yet completely defeated by their God. It's an amazing story of God delivering Rahab, of Rahab being loved by God, expressing that love, being enfolded into the family, And then her being remembered as somebody, as we read Hebrews 11 and James, and here in Matthew, part of God's great story. Rahab's beginning to understand what it means to be loved by God and to love others. Now, we were working through the Gospel of Mark in the fall. We're going to return to that in the spring. But let me read you from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, these words. This is chapter 12, verse 28. 
one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he's impressed with Jesus, he asks him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? So just think about that. The God of heaven and earth is being asked this question. What's the most important commandment for us to be thinking about? Jesus says, verse 29, The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with our heart, with, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. That man is saying to Jesus, you're right. It's more important to love God with all of who we are and to love one another as God has loved us. It's even more important than worship. It's more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's the thing we're created for. Jesus answers him and says this. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to them, it said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Rahab is not far from the kingdom of God. She's beginning to understand who God is and what that then means for how she lives her life. If this is the God they worship, if he's really this powerful, I'm really, I want to I worship him because he's so powerful. What I'm also hoping, Rahab is hoping, is that he's merciful and gracious and kind. And by faith, because of the power of who God is, she begins to live into that, and she discovers that God is far more gracious than she could have ever imagined. In the story with Rahab, she loves these spies, essentially what she's doing. Because to love someone is to think of them above yourself. It is to consider their good above your own. Rahab is certainly doing that. You know, we read in here, she's pleading for her family to be saved. Um, in verses 17 to 24, she's saying, please save my family also. What she's doing is she's putting herself at great risk for the sake of the spies, for the sake of this God they worship. So, a few things. First, think about Rahab. Rahab at this, in this time in the Bronze Age, Bronze Age only has a few marketable skills, okay? Because she's a woman, she's apparently without a husband, there's only a few things she can do to provide for her family. And so she chooses, as we read, to be a prostitute. We also read in verse 12 that she becomes an advocate for her family. So she's the one responsible to make sure her family is okay. Where does she go when she finds out that these spies are here from this God and his people who are going to take over our city? She steps in as the advocate. So she's a woman of ill repute. She is the one who defends her family. And so Rahab is desperate in every way. Her life is in danger. Um, she's not very res respected or appreciated in her culture. She's seeking to get some kind of favor from these God, this God, and she's wondering if, if, if he will even listen to her. Through the spies, she discovers that, in fact, God will listen, that he will redeem her. Don't miss that. If you want to think about something that defines the character of who God is, here it is. God is far more gracious than you could ever imagine. He's far more kind and merciful than you could ever come up with on your own. Because God is not made in your image. The scriptures are meant to open up our expectation of just how big and good and merciful and kind, gracious our God is. When you read this story... You know, if you haven't really read it before, go back and read Joshua chapter 2 slowly. Read through the story. And what you discover is God is so gracious that it is offensive. How can you be this gracious? 
And his answer, of course, is the cross is that big. The death of Jesus is actually that significant and that powerful. It comes even for Rahab. God is in the business of redemption, renewal, life-giving, making dead things come to life. That's what he does. Rahab becomes a hero in the story. As I mentioned, she's in Hebrews chapter 11. That's the hall of faith. That's where all the people from the Older Testament are mentioned that are meant to sort of remind us that God is faithful. Do you understand? Rahab is in that list. In James, she's mentioned next to none other than the father, Abraham. Abraham. Essentially, Rahab becomes Abraham for her people. She becomes the one who sacrifices for the sake of her people. She becomes one who's willing to risk everything for the sake of what God is doing. It isn't her stigma anymore that defines her. What defines her now is that the God of heaven and earth has heard her. Another thing about Rahab, she reveals to us that it is actually possible that God desires to be gracious to us in ways we can't imagine. If you were Rahab, imagine being Rahab. Do you think when she was 10 years old, she dreamed of this life? She probably had dreams. Being a mother, having a husband who loves her, having maybe a farm, being well cared for. She was so desperate. She is forgotten. She's being exploited. And by God's providence, she finds herself with her vocation, meeting with God's people who are gracious to her. Do you see how incredible that is? You know, whether it's something public or private, if you think about yourself for a moment, whether it's public or private, we see something significant here about how God wants to take things that define us and redefine us by his word, by who he says we are. This is such an important thing for us, especially in this culture, because we're all about just smiling and acting like everything's okay. You know, I don't have any real problems. Move on to the next person. God is able to press right through that and to heal even people like Rahab, even people like us, because the gospel is true. Or think about it this way. If you had to write your own autobiography, you had to write your own story, your own narrative, and you could only include the bad things in that narrative, how would you feel? God wants to take whatever that book is you could come up with and delete it, to separate it as far as the east is from the west. That's really far So that you can, what, be part of his advent. The part of bringing his son to bear on this world. So there's Rahab for a moment. Think about the spies. These are two holy warriors. And these dudes must have been like special ops, right? They're sent into Jericho. They're meant to be functionally invisible. They're supposed to covertly go in and figure out what's going on in this city so that they can then attack it and overwhelm it. Where are they? Where are these two spies hanging out? They're consorting with the enemy. They were not at a convenience store. They didn't run by them at the HEB. They are in the brothel. God sent these two in through Joshua, and they do some work, I guess, but what they discover is the information that Rahab conveys to the king, uh, or that is conveyed to the king, that everyone's terrified. And these guys are there, and people discover who they are, and what should have happened to them. What should have happened to these spies? They're inside the walls of the kingdom they're going to attack, and they've been found out. What should happen to them? They should not have made it out alive. God enters in. Providence. His divine hand. They happen to be in a place like where they are. 
And they happen to be interacting with a woman as they are, who says, I've heard of your God. He's terrifying. I've heard of the things he's done. He's overwhelmed Pharaoh. He's defeated Og. He's taken out Sion. And now you're coming for us. We hear you have an ark. And even though you all live in tents for 40 years outside running around in the desert, everyone's terrified of you. Will you please let me be part of what you're doing? Do you realize the coincidences here? God's directing this. This is his story. You couldn't come up with this on your own. These two spies, they hear Rahab, she delivers them, and then they go to Joshua. And what do they do? What could they have done? They could have gone to Joshua and said this, Hey man, we've checked the place out. We're all good. Let's take it. End of story. We would have never known this story. What do they do? They repent. They turn away from things that bring death, and they turn towards the life giver. They, they confess. They're like, hey, Joshua, here's where we were. This is what we're doing. This is where we were. People found out, and this is the person, the woman who saved us. Okay? So there it is. And what does Joshua do? Joshua do? He goes, yeah, we're going to save her. We're going to deliver her. Do you, are you seeing how crazy this story is? Something that comes out of this is that only by God's plans do God's purposes get fulfilled. That's good news for us. It's why we pray. Not my will, but your will be done. Our Father in heaven, accomplish these things. Bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Do your thing. The good news about that is God's way more creative and way more gracious and way more exciting than you could be on your own. And so these spies who are consorting with the enemy, who are honest and confess, are admirable and noble about telling Joshua what's happening, they stay true to their promises for Rahab and what happens? A new community is built. Rahab is now part of God's people. You'll read later in Joshua that she's with them for the rest of her days. And she becomes one of the women in Jesus' lineage that is so significant that it's included in the Gospel of Matthew. Rahab, in this story, so many things could have gone wrong. And yet, God's plans were fulfilled. Be encouraged. It's okay if you don't have everything figured out. God has things figured out. Your role is to trust that he's good, to trust that he's big, to trust that he's at work, to believe in his promises. And in doing that, you're putting yourself right in line and right in sync with the God who did these things, the exact same God. He is good to us. So there's a little bit about Rahab and a little bit about the spies. And let's think about what this kind of teaches us about the scriptures in general. If you go anywhere in the scriptures and you read about people, you're going to find lots of very strange stories. God makes Adam and Eve, right, in the book of Genesis. He creates them. He gives them a world to live in. It's a beautiful garden. And then they choose not to trust him. That's ludicrous. They don't trust him. And how does God respond? He doesn't say, okay, do over, deep, and move on. What does he do? From Genesis 3 all the way through the book of Revelation is the story of God responding to what happens in the first three chapters of Genesis. The rest of the Bible is about God saying, no, death will not win. Sin will not win. My plans of redemption will be accomplished. And then we have all these things that happen in between Genesis 3 and Revelation. The scriptures teach us that God is gracious to, kn to knuckleheads like us. Noah's not much better. He's accused of being crazy. He's building a big boat in the middle of a desert because he trusts God. But Noah has his own story. And what does God do? God's gracious to him. God delivers him and his family. Moses, he's an orphan. Yes, he's found, but he's an orphan. 
He's, he's an Egyptian. He's a murderer. He's arrogant. He's bitter. He can't speak well. And so what does God say? Ah, you're going to be the one who speaks with Aaron to Pharaoh about my commandments. And what's the greatest commandment? To love God and love others. Moses, you're going to be the guy who takes the Ten Commandments and reminds the people of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your being. Paul the Apostle, super smart, very arrogant. He's, a, he's guilty of many, many, many hate crimes. He, he, he becomes so angry that he's recorded in the book of Acts about being part of the stoning of God's people. He's a bad dude. But something happens in, in Paul's heart. Philippians chapter 2, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. What happened to him? He encountered this God, and it transformed him. To get back to the story for a minute, if you think about the spies, they're goofing off on their mission. God could have used another way to reveal what he wanted to reveal, but what does he do with the spies? He lets them escape. He moves in their heart to be humble. They're humble and acknowledging what happens, and the result is that Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother or whatever gets to be part of the kingdom. It's an incredible story of God's faithfulness and his goodness. God is in the business of approaching the unapproachable, redeeming the irredeemable, giving hope to the hopeless. That's who God is. As you read this story in Joshua chapter 2, you, you, you really ought to pause and think, what does this then mean for my life? If this is who God is, what does it mean for me? Now, does your heart want to be part of what God's doing, or does it want to be part of something else? You know, it's interesting. Anytime you read the scriptures, in the, in the Older Testament especially, there's lots of things we can say about this. I'm just going to say one. But you read about God's people overtaking, like Og and Sion and the kingdom of Jericho. Like you read about those things, and you're like, well, why doesn't God include them? You know, if you go back and read, what you hear is that with the king of Jericho, he knew about this God. People were terrified because they knew what this God had done. They knew all about this God. Rahab says, I want to know this God. And what she discovers is he's not just powerful, he's gracious and merciful. The king of Jericho, Og, Sion, Pharaoh, what's their approach? Do they know who God is? Yes, they know who God is. Do they express any interest at all in being part of his kingdom? No, they don't. They'd very much prefer for him to pass by and let them have their own little kingdom. In their mind, their version of their kingdom brings life. Does that sound familiar? I very much function that way sometimes. My version of my life on my terms and my way is going to be easier for me. Please get on board. The problem is, is that we are finite. And we don't realize that if you really had that, it would be horrible. God is gracious to us and says, I don't want you to be king of your own kingdom. You're not good at it anyway. Let me be king of your kingdom. And the result is going to be resurrection for Rahab, for the spies, for Joshua, for the people of God, for Brad Wright, for our church, for the people of the woodlands. God has a plan that leads to life and renewal and hope and restoration. That's what Advent tells us. God is inviting us to his expectations. You know, speaking of Christmas movies, 
for the older adolescents among us and the adults, if you've ever seen Christmas Vacation, uh, you know, with um, that whole story of a dad, right, who has all these expectations about how Christmas is supposed to be and what Advent's supposed to be like, and what he discovers and why it's funny throughout the film is everything he wants falls apart, except that he gets to be with his family and it's kind of cute at the end. But there's this scene where Clark is laying there with his wife, and they're talking, and um, she goes, oh, Sparky, I just don't want you to get your hopes up. And he's like, oh, I don't know what you mean. She's like, well, and she goes through this list of like 15 things where he gets his hopes up about things that never work out like he hopes they would. And she's like, graduation, birthday parties, your work, like everything. And for the whole movie, he's left behind one time in the attic and falls through the roof. He tries to light his Christmas lights and puts out all the lights in the suburbs. Like nothing works out well for him. All of the expectations are dashed. And he's absolutely miserable. And what you see on the outside with him is what we all feel on the inside when our expectations aren't met. Clark just doesn't hide it. And it's hilarious to watch. God is gracious to us. And he's inviting you to have his expectations. Because in having his expectations, you find Christ. You find mercy. You find grace. You find his promises. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through, God invites you into that new narrative, Rahab's narrative, the spy's narrative, his narrative for his people. Let me kind of wrap this up with this. I talk about this a lot, but it's this, something I call the gospel paradigm. You've probably heard it before. But this is an amazing example of how spirituality works for us, how having a relationship with God works for us. People have all sorts of approaches. Some people feel like the better you are, the more God loves you. The worse you are, the less God loves you. The story of Rahab tells us that's 100% inaccurate. Rahab could not have been further from God's plans for her life as far as following his commands. She couldn't have been further. And yet she's very much included. Some folks kind of think that, well, you know, I don't know who God is, but I'll just wait for him to prove himself. Okay, that's fine. The scriptures are there for us to read so that we can know who God is and we can begin to follow him. That's good. What's God's paradigm for inviting us into his story? Here it is. God reveals his love to us. We begin to understand it. We begin to believe it. We begin to see it. And in doing that, he begins to make us more like his son, the very one we celebrate on Christmas morning. And the result of that is we begin to love the kinds of people that God loves. Rahab was loved by God's people because God's people saw that he loved her and they knew his love. You know, if you really want to live into Advent this season, this is like my own personal spiritual practice I'm trying to work out. What does it mean for me to be so enamored with how God loves me that it allows me to love the kinds of people that God loves? Because in doing that, we're entering into God's narrative, which always leads to life and goodness and a real reason to celebrate during this season. Okay? Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks for your story of redemption that is for us. For Rahab's story, a woman who might have been forgotten, and yet you made her a woman who was at the center of your story and history of bringing Christ into our lives. And we give you thanks for that. We ask that your spirit would enable us to live into Advent as the beloved of God who seek to love others in that same way as we follow you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.